please be seated and please can you keep your Bibles open to that page. Uh, and if you've lost it, it's page 1058, page 1058 of the Church Bibles, uh, John chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. Uh, can I also ask if you could take out your bulletin uh, and uh, open up to the center pages there, the center page of the bulletin, which is page 6 and 7. Uh, we have the outline uh, of the sermon, but also the cross-references uh, that we're going to refer to so they'll be easier for us and have to flip around. Uh, so they're all there on page 6 and 7. So page 6 and 7 of the bulletin and page 1058 of the um, Bible. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us by your Spirit through your Word. And we ask now, Heavenly Father, that as you have been speaking to us, as your Word was read, you continue to do that uh, as we open it up and discuss it together. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that um, uh, you will enable me uh, to preach your word rightly, um, faithfully, clearly, uh, and in your Spirit's power. And we pray that each one of us will be able to uh, hear what you are saying to us, uh, that we will respond rightly to Jesus, and that we will give him the, the honor and the glory and the obedience that he is due. Uh, and we pray that... Uh, uh, you will be glorified in all this. And we ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the last few weeks, except for little breaks that we've had, we've been hearing God's word from the Gospel of John. Uh, we saw right at the beginning in John 1, 1 to 18, that Jesus is God the Son become human. He is the one who perfectly reveals the Father. And we saw in verses 19 to 51 how John the Baptist prepared the way for him introduced him as a lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and, and how a number of his followers came to follow him. And we saw in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, how Jesus did his first sign in Cana of Galilee, churning, changing the water into wine. And we saw the significance of that. And now the Holy Spirit, through John, uh, tells us how Jesus' zeal for the temple led him to drive out the traders there. Now, this is at the beginning of his ministry. Uh, a similar incident is reported by the other Gospels at the end, and some people worry about the fact that Jesus did this driving of the traders out of the temple more than once. But, but let me tell you, in three years of ministry, there's all kinds of things you do more than once. Why would that be a problem? Well, it was a busy time in Jerusalem. Uh, uh, verse 13 tells us it was the, the Passover of the Jews. Uh, this is one of the times when Jews from all over the nation was supposed to appear before God at the special place that he chose, the temple in Jerusalem. And so, and Jesus in verse 13 goes up to the temple, up because it's a higher elevation. And when he goes there, he finds these things in the temple. Verse 14, he finds those who are selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. Now, what's the problem? The oxen and the sheep and the pigeons, they were sacrificial animals needed for the sacrifice. Isn't it good that people are there to sell them people, so that people can be sacrificing them? And the money changers, they weren't like Thomas Cook or American Express, you know, changing currency from ringgit to dollars. The temple tax, which every adult male Jew was supposed to pay, could only be paid in one type of coin. And the money changers were there so people from different parts of the world can change their money to the right one so they can pay. 
Oh, pretty useful, really. But look what Jesus does in verse 15. He makes a whip of cords. He drives them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He pours out the coins of the money changers. He overturns their tables. And he tells those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. What's going on here? What are they doing that was wrong? Well, you may argue that they were trading in the court of the Gentiles and so uh, depriving the Gentiles of the chance to be at the outer court of the temple. And certainly when Jesus does this again at the end of his ministry, he will talk about the temple being a house of prayer for all the nations. Or you could say that there was probably corruption and cheating going on. Uh, the pilgrims were being overcharged and the temple authorities were pocketing money. And certainly when Jesus does this again at the end of his ministry, he will call it a den of robbers. But this time he doesn't mention either of those two things. Was it, what is it that he speaks against? At the end of verse 16, he says, Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Jesus is angry that the temple has become a house of trade, and so he brings judgment upon it. Though, incidentally, in the midst of judgment, he does show mercy, doesn't he? Uh, Notice he drives out the sheep and the oxen. Uh, the traders would have been able to retrieve them outside. He overturns the temple, uh, the, the tables. He pours out the coins of the money changers, but they would have been able to pick them up. But when he gets to the pigeons, he doesn't open the cages and set them free because the traders wouldn't be able to get them back. He just tells the traders, take these things away. In the midst of judgment, he is measured and merciful. Though the point is that he does bring the judgment. Jesus comes to the temple and he dries out the traitors. Now, what's the significance of this action? To understand the significance of this action, we need to go back to the Old Testament. Uh, and there are three passages in the Old Testament that help us to understand this. Uh, and we see them in point 2b uh, of the outline. Firstly, there's the book of the prophet Zechariah. And in Zechariah, God speaks of a day when he will bring judgment upon the nations. And after that, there's a new order. Everything in the nation will be holy. Even the bells on the horses will be holy. Every pot in the land will be so holy that it can be used to boil the meat of the sacrifice. Imagine that. And on that day, in Zechariah 14, at the very end, verse 21, there shall no longer be a trader in the house of the Lord of hosts. Now, friends, at one level, that day has already come when the prophecy has been fulfilled because Jesus, by his death, has made all his people holy. That day will come in its fullness in the future when Jesus returns to bring in the new creation and everything in that new creation is holy. And when Jesus enters the temple, he gets rid of the traitors in anticipation of that day. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. The second Old Testament passage is one from the Psalms of David. Uh, In fact, John explicitly draws it to our attention in verse 17 where he says, His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. And that was Psalm 69, which we read earlier. 
In Psalm 69, King David is crying out to God to save him from his enemies who hate him. And they hate him because they hate God. And it's for God's sake that David suffers. Zeal for God's house consume him. That passion for the house of the Lord is why his enemies hated him. Now remember, God's house at that time was the tabernacle, which King David had brought to Jerusalem. And there was the tabernacle, but he also did a lot in preparation for the temple, which his son Solomon would actually build. David was zealous for God's house, and those who opposed God hated him. And that would be the same for King Jesus, the true king whom David prefigured. Those who hated God, even though they pretended to love God, would hate him. And it's for God's sake that Jesus would suffer. Zeal for God's house would consume him. And his act of clearing the temple, once, twice, would be one of the acts that would lead to his death. The third significant Old Testament passage is from Malachi chapter 3. Uh, we look at that on the outline. Uh, and it starts in chapter 3 verse 1 with this. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. God is speaking here. And who is this messenger, do you think? It's John the Baptist, isn't it? All right, we saw that in weeks past. Uh, and then what happens after that? After that, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. You see that? God will come to his temple. And what will he do when he comes? Well, verse 2, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like the fullest soap. See, God will come to his temple, but, but he will bring judgment on the temple. And only then after that, Ah, the new order we brought in, and there'll be pure offerings that are pleasing to God. Again, this prophesy will ultimately be fulfilled through Jesus' death and resurrection, but here's a preview, a picture that anticipates the coming of the new order. And it follows the sequence that Malachi gives. John the Baptist first, then the Lord comes to his temple in judgment. So what have we seen so far about the significance of Jesus' actions? We've seen that he's claiming to be the one who brings in the new order, who brings holiness to the whole land, not just the things that were previously sacred. Secondly, he's the king who will suffer because of his passion for God's house. And thirdly, he is God himself who will come to his temple in judgment before the new order comes in. So we put those two together how do we summarize what we've seen in verses 13 to 17? We, we can summarize like this. If you're taking notes, you can write this down because it's not on the handout. We can summarize like this. By, the act of, by this act of judgment on the temple, Jesus declared that he is Lord and anticipated the new order knowing he would suffer as a result. Right? By this act of judgment on the temple, Jesus declared that he is Lord and anticipated the new order knowing that he would suffer as a result. Come now to point three. The Jews of his day knew that Jesus was making a big claim by these actions. And so they asked him what right he has to do that. 
Verse 18, the Jews say to him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? And Jesus gives them the sign, verse 19. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And and to the Jews, this sounds ridiculous. They say in verse 20, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. I mean, if you think the contractors in Malaysia are slow, right? these guys have been working on renovating the temple for 46 years. And you say you can build the temple in three days. But, verse 21, he was speaking about the temple of his body the temple of his body what does this mean well if you go back to John chapter 1 verse 14 we read that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and the word dwelt there is pitched his tent or tabernacled among us remember in the Old Testament before the temple was built God dwelt among his people in the tabernacle, which is like a a mobile temple made with tents. And we saw just now this tabernacle was eventually replaced with a temple in fulfillment of God's promises built by David's son, Solomon. And so that was God's house, the place where people will go and meet God. But when God's people rebelled against him, his presence eventually left the temple and the temple was destroyed. But the prophet Ezekiel spoke of a new temple, not a literal temple, because from this new temple, water would flow out to the surrounding lands and and getting deeper and deeper, and it was living water, so anything it touched became alive and fresh. And it's it's a symbolic thing, using the categories of the past, that God's presence will be in his people, pictured as this temple, giving life to the nations. Now, on a literal level, the temple was rebuilt when people came back from exile. But it was small and pathetic, not like the the temple of Ezekiel's vision. Though between the Old and New Testament times, King Herod did a lot of work to to renovate the temple. And by the time Jesus had this conversation, the, the process had taken already 46 years. But the real temple, the temple to which all these, the tabernacle and the temple, all was pointing forward to, was Jesus himself. In him, God dwelt among us. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. We meet God in him. We worship God by coming to him. Jesus is the real temple. And remember the water that flowed out of of that future temple, from that living water from Ezekiel's vision? Well, when we go to chapter 4 of John's gospel, Jesus will tell the Samaritan woman that he will give her living water and that no longer will people go to the temple in Jerusalem or people go to the mountain to worship they'll worship in spirit and in truth they'll come to him and we will see later that that water that living water that Jesus gives us is the Holy Spirit who gives life to the people of God Jesus is the real temple and Jesus said destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days and he was talking of the temple of his body. And you know what? The Jews, they actually did what Jesus said, eventually. His statement understood correctly wasn't ridiculous at all. Zeal for God's house did destroy him. 
Those who hated God did eventually have him crucified. And the temple that the Jews destroyed really was his body. And yet, paradoxically, that is how he actually brought in the new order. The ultimate judgment of which God's judgment on the temple in the Old Testament was a picture was experienced by him. For in his death, he bore the punishment for the sins of God's people down through the ages. The temple was indeed destroyed. But he really did raise it in three days. For Jesus rose again as the glorious permanent temple, the place where we meet God, the place where we worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus raised the temple just as he said. Now we can only understand this when we put three things together. The fact of the resurrection, the words of Jesus, and the Old Testament scriptures. So it's only after the resurrection that the disciples understood. In verse 22 it says, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Remember how God's king, the, the son of David, built the first temple? Well, God's ultimate king, the ultimate son of David, raised the ultimate temple. And when Jesus was raised, his disciples remembered his words. They believed the scripture. They believed Jesus' word. That is what true faith is. Right? Faith in God is, is believing his word. Now as we come to the implications of this passage, uh, let's think about the main implications. Well, the main implication must come from the main point of the passage, isn't it? Uh, and what's the main point? Well, we saw earlier that by his judgment on the temple, Jesus declared that he is Lord he anticipated the new order that he would bring in, knowing that he would suffer as a result. And now we've seen that the sign that this is true is his resurrection from the dead as the real temple of God. So what must we do? We must, like the disciples, believe the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. We must believe that Jesus really is Lord that he is that promised king, that he is God made flesh, come to his temple. We must believe that Jesus really did bring in that new order, that by his death he makes his people holy. By his rising from the dead, he has shown himself to be the true temple. We must believe that he is the place where we truly meet God. That's the main point of the passage, and so that's the main implication for us. Believe God's word about Jesus. And by believing, we will have life in his name. But there are other implications that flow from this passage as well. And let me start by telling you one that's not right. Uh, some people might conclude, having read this passage, that, that we should go to the book corner, that we should overthrow the, the book stands and empty the cash register on the floor. Right. Uh, should we go and drive Jessica out of the book corner because Jesus drove the traders out of the temple? Well, the answer, of course, is no. Because the cathedral is not the temple. 
Jesus is. The cathedral is a beautiful building for us to gather in. I read a review just the other day on the internet of people from different parts of the world saying what a beautiful building we have. And they took photographs of all the different, play, of all the di- all the different parts of the cathedral and there was comments down the bottom and wow, what a pretty place. It's wonderful, we're very grateful for it. Right? But it's not the temple. God doesn't dwell in a building. Jesus is the temple. And if we had time to look further in the Bible, we will, we will see that we are God's temples because God's spirit dwells in us. And that together we are God's temple because God dwells among us by his spirit. And so the building is not the temple. So we've got no reason from this passage why we cannot have a book corner. But there are other implications to think about. Since Jesus is the true temple, what does that mean for us? Well, first of all, it means that we meet God in him and only in him. People had to come from near and far to peer before God at the one place, at the temple. God did not permit the sacrifices to be offered anywhere else but the temple. That was God's command. And that is the same today. God does not accept into his presence anyone who will not come through Jesus, the new temple. There is no sacrifice for sin apart from the sacrifice made on the cross in that temple, in that body of Jesus. No one comes to the Father, Jesus will say in John's gospel, but by me. God commands people from everywhere to appear before him in the temple, to come to him in Jesus. We meet God in Jesus and only in him. Secondly, it means worshipping God through Jesus is far bigger than coming to church on Sunday. Now, sometimes we think, oh, we cannot swear or we cannot lie in cathedral property because, because this is God's house. Implication, we think, oh, maybe it's okay to do so outside. But actually, we've seen that, that the building's not God's house. God dwells uniquely in Christ, and he dwells in us by his spirit. Uh, Christ has fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah and brought in the, the new order. He's made our whole lives holy. Remember the bells on the horses, the pots in the kitchen? We worship God in Christ. We are constantly in that temple. So whatever we do, wherever we go, we are meant to be ultimately worshiping God. And so our work, our leisure, our relationships, our reading, our everything is meant to be a sacred service. That includes what we do in church, but it also includes what we do in our homes, in our workplaces, in our cars, in our small groups, on our computers, in our shopping malls. We seek to honor God in everything we do, in how we treat our children, in how we help our colleagues, in how we drive our vehicles, in how we use our phones, in how we encourage our brothers and sisters, how we care for each other, how we spend our money. All that is worship. And we worship or serve, same word, in, with, and through Jesus. Whether we're at church or at home, because we are always in him. We are always in that temple. 
That is why we end our service with the words, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. We worship God together corporately, but we continue to worship him with all of our lives. Jesus is the true temple where we worship the Father. Thirdly, it means we need to be zealous for the true temple. Zeal for your house will consume me, it was said of Jesus. Uh, Jesus was zealous for the physical temple that pointed forward to him. So how much more should we be zealous for the real temple, Jesus himself? And we must be zealous of his role in the temple. We must be vigilant against anything that would diminish his position as a true temple. When other people are set up as mediators, people through whom you've got to go through in order to come to God, we must say, no, no, no. Whether they go by the name of pastor or priest or evangelist or saint or worship leader or whatever it is, no one brings us to God except Jesus. Jesus is a true mediator. When people want to make something apart from the, 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 apart from the once and for all death of Jesus, the, the, the sacrifice that brings us to God, we, we must say no. Jesus is the one sacrifice that takes away our sin. True temple worship is worship in him, with him, and through him. God, the sanctity of God's house, Jesus. He must not be diminished among us. Finally, if you are a trader, then repent. You see, traders were in the temple, but they were there for business, not worship. And there are those today who appear to be in Christ, but they don't actually serve him. They come to Christ not to worship in him, but to advance their careers, to gain worldly wealth, to seek fame or popularity. But after the day of judgment, Zechariah says, there, there won't be a traitor in the house of the Lord. They will not be part of his new creation. We are in the temple to worship, to serve Jesus. So if you're one of those people, then please call to the Lord Jesus for mercy because he is gracious and compassionate and merciful. Ask him to make you a true worshiper who worships in the temple of Jesus, who comes to the Father through him, who trusts in his sacrifice made once for all on the cross, who seeks to serve him in all of life. Stop being a trader Start being a worshiper. For Jesus is Lord. He has brought in the new order. He will bring in the new creation. And we have the sign that this is true. His resurrection from the dead as the real temple of God. Hear his word. Believe the scriptures. And trust in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your Son has brought in the new order by his death for our sins. Thank you that he has raised the temple by his resurrection. Thank you that he is Lord and that he is the true temple. And thank you that through him, with him, 
and in him, we can indeed worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray that all of us would be people who believe the scriptures and the word that he tells us. And that by believing in him, we would have eternal life. We pray that we would be people who come to you as you have revealed yourself in him. We pray that we would be people who trust in that once and for all sacrifice made in his body. We pray that we would be people who worship you every day as his holy people, as we live to serve him. And we pray that we would be people who are zealous for his honor and glory as your true temple. And we ask all this in his name. Amen.